Dotnet Rocks episode 695 with guest Kate Gregory. Recorded live Monday, August 29th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. Hey, it's all good. It's .NET. It's good. It's good. good. We're going to geek out with Kate Gregory here in a minute, but first, hey, how are you, man? I am well. You know, no rest for the wicked, but I'm not complaining. It's been a good summer. Got a few weeks at home now for a change. I'm recording this uh, right after the hurricane. Yes. Yeah. I think I've already talked about it by now, so I won't. I'll just get right into Better Know Framework. Awesome. That's just the kind of guy I am. (laughs) What do you got? (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, I want to remind people that the Franklin Brothers album is available by now at Frank- and awesome at franklinbros.com as of this recording eight five-star reviews on amazon.com that's because it's awesome franklinbros.com it's great get it okay uh you know i've been doing these html5 tags yes because even though they're not part of the net framework uh it should i don't know we might have to rename this segment i don't know we'll see but this one is the aside tag mm. and this is one of those Really? <laughs> Tags. Really what it is, is if you have an article within a side, like a sidebar. Oh, really? You can wrap it in, in a side thing. And this really gets to the intention of what we're supposed to do with HTML5. Like, there's a lot of these little meta tags, little microformat tags in here that a content re displayer <laughs> let's say can take and make not just a web page but maybe a more interactive or more graphical or more something interface hmm. to the same content you know that's really what's going on with html5 here yeah is that all the little pieces of information can be defined with tags and then we don't have to go scraping for them yeah they're just they're just there. So I like it. Yeah. And a side tag. Good for bloggers. Good evolution. Good evolution. Hey, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off show 690, which was J.D. Meyer. Oh, great show. The Agile for Life website in that whole conversation, which I really enjoyed. He was an inspiration. He and uh, uh, Abdu Moomin wrote a comment saying, one of the points he brought up in this show relates to the latest blog post by Scott Hanselman. And it made quite a buzz, actually, with lots of comments. He entitled it, I'm a phony. Are you? Yeah, he's gotten a lot of hits on this. Yeah, and I've read, I read the post. I read, I read most of Scott's stuff because, let's face it, he's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, very interesting conversation. I highly recommend you go uh, have a read of I'm a phony. This is what uh, Abdu said. Uh, this really resonated with me and apparently with many other developers. It seems that we, especially in the IT industry, tend to underestimate our skills and think that, yeah, well, I might have gotten this far, but I just got lucky or it was simple this time. What about next time? Will I overcome my next challenge? Yeah. And that feeling often comes more and more as you get a feel for the breadth of our field or as you go deeper down the rabbit hole. Yeah. However, what I've noticed in myself and Scott and many others have confirmed is that instead of pulling us down, most of the time this feeling makes us strive to be better and achieve more. Mm, yeah. And I, I think I, one of the things I said in that show with JD was that we tend to, once we understand something, think it's simple. We call it simple. That's right. Even though it wasn't simple. It wasn't simple when we figured it out. It isn't simple now. And that's why we're always accused of, you know, when somebody says, how do you do this? And we say, oh, it's just simple. You just, and then lay out 10 really complex steps that if you had no experience would not be simple, but it would be completely archaic. Well, you know, there's funny implement, there's the side of you're undermining your own worth. You're also undermining the person you're speaking to because you say, if you don't understand this, you're obviously an idiot. It's simple. That's right. So we come right? off as being, you know, pretentious. Yeah. And, and face it, we're not, right? If anything, yeah. we're insecure about these That's things. That's right. So I think we got to back off on the simple. 
You know, the stuff we do here, not that simple. No. And it's hard. And it's okay for it to be hard. We do hard work. You know, this is an interesting thing because you and I have been doing this geek out show while well, we, we're doing this geek out show and getting a lot of comments that people really want us to do it. And your reaction is very interesting, Richard. It's pissing you off. Well, it, I'm, I'm beginning to embrace it, but it's, you know, we work really hard to make the best show we can with the best experts we can and so forth. Right. And us just geeking on space is not the same thing. Right. And I said but, to you, well, is it is it making you mad because it's easy for uh, you, you yeah. know? Because you're guess, because you're re- really really interested in it and you just want to talk about it. Yeah. And I therefore you're sort of devaluing it because it's not challenging. Yeah, and well, and I've always feel like I need to work hard at this stuff, don't you? Right. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, <laughs> that's the best part about being an expert in what you do. If you really like it, you do it really well, and then you don't feel like you're working. So, <laughs> well, I haven't felt like I was working for a year. But, <laughs> but that's that's a different issue entirely. Anyway, I will I will bow to the listeners. You want more geek out shows? We will do more geek out we are shows. Doing There's more. another space show in the list. This is a bunch of stuff we didn't cover, and we're going to get to it because. That's what you asked for. All right. And so so look forward to that. Well, Richard, this is going to be a great show because our friend Kate Gregory is back on .NET Rocks. She was one of the first guests on the show, if you remember. And, of course, uh, a fine Canadian RD. Kate Gregory is in her fourth decade of being paid to program. Her firm, Gregory Consulting Limited, is based in rural Ontario and helps clients adopt new technologies and adjust to the changing business environment. Current work makes heavy use of .NET and Visual C++, along with SharePoint in both web and client development, especially for Windows 7. Managing, mentoring, technical writing, and technical speaking occupy much of her time, but she still writes code every week and has a steady supply of Coca-Cola. Welcome back, Cake. Good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) The Caffeine Decode Converter. Yes, indeed. I have some right here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what happens, though, when too much caffeine goes in and not enough code comes out? When that code finally does come out, is it, like, super concentrated? Absolutely, yeah. Do you, like, write one line, a a program in one line of code in C++? It's like stand back. It's potent stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) It's potent. (laughs) You know, we tease you about the C++ thing all the time, but rumor has it your language isn't dead. You know what? Um, This is the funniest thing because um, there has been a huge sort of attitude shift, but there hasn't really been any reality shift. Right. You know, so uh, one of the things I've been saying all summer is like, don't call it a comeback because we never left. Right. We've been (laughs) Ah. here for years. (laughs) Um, So the the C++ team, you know, they, they went and did some demographics and they found some really surprising things about the popularity of C++. Um, the number one language, for example, used by college students. Really? Including for their own personal projects. Wow. I mean, I was just like, wait, what? Uh, that really shocked me. Uh, they went to various open source repositories and just did some, you know, select by language. And the number one uh, SourceForge language, C++. Wow. Huh. So, like, really counterintuitive numbers if you've sort of been believing the the received wisdom or the accepted wisdom that it's this dwindling dinosaur thing, you know? Um, and I was, uh, you know, I used to say, uh, when I'm done, I should turn out the lights and all. And then you start meeting people who are, are 20 or 25 and, and want to learn C++ and get into C++ programming. But when uh. they say that, are they talking about particular kinds of projects? In some cases, they are. You know, there's a number of people, for example, who want to write for smartphones. Mm-hmm. And C++ is a choice for a lot of smartphone platforms. Um, in some cases, they want jobs in particular industries, uh, gaming, uh, financial software development, all kinds of modeling and simulation that never went anywhere. And these mm-hmm. are a huge, huge chunk of the jobs out there. They're just not a huge chunk of the people who come to tech it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, we're, we're now lumping all of the managed development environments, the Javas and the, the .NETs together here when you look in those things. I mean, it, we've got to say building CRUD apps in 
.NET is faster than building with C++, don't we? Isn't that fair? Oh, absolutely. Yes, indeed. If you if you want to make, you know, like a little kind of grid thing where the drop-down box and you choose something in the drop-down box and the grid fills in, um, I, I want to do that in, in C Sharp or VB.NET. You know, I want to use data-bound controls and I want to use link and, and that's the smart, that's the right tool for that job. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, Kate... So, Kate, there's been a lot of talk lately about C++'s role in the the upcoming landscape of of uh, Microsoft development mm-hmm. uh, because everybody's going crazy about native apps, you know. Yep. And uh, what what do you think the it's what do you think the reality is in terms of you know in a post build environment? If you could speculate. Well, I am I am only speculating because I don't have access to to anything that's not public. Yeah, none of us do, by the no, way. Every, it just, it it's Fort bitter, Knox. But there you go. <laughs> it's the Fort Knox of information at Microsoft lately. It is. But we based, have no info. Based on strictly public stuff, uh, clearly um, the C++ team have said they will be at build in insignificant quantities. Uh, the C++ team have talked about um, bringing C++ properly into the like application lifecycle management tools. Hmm. Um, hmm. there, you know, there was a talk at TechEd that you can see the video of that was demoing, you know, with a pre-release build of, what are we supposed to call it? V-Next. Um, mm-hmm. you know, showing things that if you've done any work at all in C-Sharp are like, really? Really? This is a demo? But for yeah. plus people, you know, the audience was taking notes, right? Um, this indicates to me that they expect it to be an important language to develop it. You know, um, I don't suspect that you'll see the full suite of graphical designers because most people are quite happy to write their GUIs in C sharp. But for back end work, you need the full you need to be able to run unit tests and that kind of stuff. You just have to. And are we really talking about C here? Are people still programming in C and and for those who don't know, can you really define the difference between the two? So we've got about at least six different possibilities. So there's there's C. Right. And there are people who are writing in C. They're typically not writing for a PC. Okay. No. Okay. They're writing for some other device, but they're probably writing on a PC. Right. And they're and they're going to yeah. use Visual Studio and deploy to something embedded. Like you may not recognize it as a computer. It might be a photocopier. Right. Um, or a refrigerator. Or a refrigerator. Or it might be I a phone. I think that's crazy, by the way. <laughs> a programmable refrigerator. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's stop. That's what I say. Stop. <laughs> Is your refrigerator running? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do I need? A, an app to tell me that the milk is low. Can I just open the door? <laughs> I, I don't think something's really an appliance till it has an IP address. I would like to get email from my toaster, but I'm that kind of guy. Well, you know, back no. in the day, back in the day, there were Coke dispensers, a vending machine, at yeah, various fingered. universities that you could finger, which sounds yep. worse than it is, and they would tell you when they were last filled up, so you didn't walk all the way down there to find out that there was no root beer or that the Coke That's was right. warm. Yeah. It's this is a classic programming story, Kate. Uh, the the finger was a very simple TCP/IP protocol. It was like ping. You just basically send it a a, a message, and it sends you back. Yeah, I've got twenty cokes, you know, yeah. thirty root beers, whatever. Gives I know. you a little inventory, but saves you from walking all the way there. I mean, geeks are all about oh, don't make me like walk or exercise to go and get <laughs> or my sugar. Open the fridge door. <laughs> 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 Don't make me get up. That's you wouldn't right. like it when I get up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's okay. a big use of what's happening with C. Uh, there are also people who are programming in C but believe they're programming in C++. Oh, really? Um, I, I meet these people all the time. They're they're still using printf and uh, and and you know an f open and what have you. They they might have the occasional class in their code, but not if they can help it. They they use things that you know they were taught in Intro to C a very long time ago that aren't in their opinion broken, um, okay. and they think they're C plus plus programmers, but they're not. So are they building sort of object like structures and trying to use them as such without yeah. the object infrastructure? Well, there's also a, a, a phrase that comes around called C with classes, and C hmm. with classes was actually like one of the first names of C plus plus. And it reads exactly like C, except it happens to have classes in it. And that's in contrast to modern C++, which is another kind of like code phrase or dog whistle or something, that means something completely different with the same compiler. Hmm. 
So to give you an example, in C, you malloc something, then later you have to free it. That's the rule. And right. in old school C++ or C with classes, you knew something and then you have to delete it. And those are the rules. In modern C++, you use stack semantics to give you deterministic destruction. So even if you knew something on the heap, you immediately stick it in a smart pointer. And when the smart pointer goes out of scope, your stuff is cleaned up for you on the heap. It's not garbage collection because it's deterministic, but it's as easy as garbage collection. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, you use a term I've never heard before that just makes makes my mind go nuts here. Smart pointer. So <laughs> a pointer <laughs> is it is it the address of uh, some data or some code? Right. A smart pointer must be something that has metadata about what's there, perhaps? That's right. So there are all kinds of smart pointers, but the easiest one to talk about because people see the benefit right away is the shared pointer. So the shared pointer is a reference-counting, non-intrusive smart pointer, which means basically it's an object that's got two member variables. One's a raw pointer, so some address on the heap, and the other is a counter. Okay? And when yeah. when you say, use the copy constructor or the assignment operator or in some other way, uh, take a copy of this pointer, it bumps the reference counter. Okay? That's, that's and, like one level, one level away from a true object, isn't it? Because isn't an object a pointer to a pointer to an array of pointers? Well, maybe in some languages. <laughs> 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 so it knows how many, uh, how many places in your code, if you will, are currently using that, that heap pointer. And when the last one goes away, goes out of scope, whether because a function returned or because an exception was thrown or because a temporary disappeared or all of the things that are hard to keep track of yourself. When the last one is done, he turns out the lights. He's like, whoa, reference count is going to zero, and he deletes the memory on the heap. This is a, We did this in Calm. Absolutely. A billion years mm -hmm. ago. Smart yeah. pointers are a really old technology. There was one in the C++ standard library, what a lot of people historically call STL, although it's not its name anymore, um, called Auto Pointer. The only problem with it was it incredibly dumb. It was the dumbest smart pointer ever. <laughs> it's a dumb, dumb pointer. <laughs> so, so if you just did a demo where you like nude something up, put it in a smart pointer, and then you let it go out of scope, and then it got deleted for you, and you said, "Woohoo, that was great, that worked." But the sorts of things people really did, like putting the pointer in a collection, uh, a standard library collection, it, it just broke. It just did all the wrong stuff, um, and. So in the new C++, which is, I have to get used to now calling C++11, a name it's had for a couple of weeks, um, there's a, a shared pointer and a unique pointer that are super, super smart. They behave properly in, in collections. They, are they give you polymorphism. They can be cast up and down. They do everything you'd expect a pointer to do, and you don't have to remember to delete. Just as simple as that. Nice. When the when nobody's using it anymore, the memory is cleaned up, and you literally should not have the letters D E L E T E in your code. Hmm. Wow, that's almost nice. like programming yeah. in a real language. Well, yeah, it's almost like it, using. <laughs> well, it gives you that con that convenience, except it's not garbage collection, right? It's still deterministic destruction. Right. So okay. with using, when you come out of a using, the dispose goes off. 
which is great right. for all your non-memory needs, your file handles or your database connections or your locks or whatnot. And that that part of the destruction is deterministic, but the rest of the, the memory in the .NET world or the Java world or whatever is when the garbage collector happens to run, mm-hmm. right? So on the C++ yep. side of things, you're getting everything destructed in that deterministic way. I mean, where, and the downside of that being, if you're the unlucky person or the unlucky chunk of code that is the final deallocation on that reference pointer, you now have to wait around for the cleanup. Possibly. That's right. So when you move things off asynchronously, they may have unexpected impact at a time when you thought things were clear and fine. Right. But they may just quietly run when nothing important is going on. So it, depending on the quality of your garbage collector, it can be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, certainly all your cleanups, you know, should be as time, as time sensitive as possible because nobody really wants to wait while things are closed. But on the other hand, you, I can't stand those things that say, I'm sorry, this failed because the file's in use by another process. Right. Like, not another yeah. process. Damn it. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, it's the same process tree. It starts with me. Starts with me, and I closed it, and it should be closed by now, but you know, you need a certain number of lines of code between where you closed it and where you tried to open it again. Right. Dumb pointer. Hey, uh, I, I might be jumping off on a tangent here, but you, you know, you said, you said the word polymorphism, which sort of brought me back and makes me think, and, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek. We've, you know, sitting here in our .NET rocks ivory tower, sometimes we get, because of the, the stuff that we're talking about, the people we're talking to and the things that they're interested in, sometimes we don't get, you know, the big picture of what's going on in the software world. But it seems to me from from where I sit that the whole when when we started off in learning objects, there was this, you know, emphasis on inheritance and polymorphism and all this stuff and and making inheritance trees correctly. And then it turns out I think that people rejected that whole model of using base classes and base classes and more base classes and layering because it just makes things inflexible, moving and opting instead for interfaces and flat sort of object trees. Do you, th- is it me or is that still the case? And, and is it, just the the objects that do stuff, business processes that are like that, and do we still do people still write applications where the object model represents the real life model of the thing that you're programming around? I think a lot of it has to do with runtime composability and extensibility. So that was like very very new and exciting when Java came out and when .NET came out that you didn't have to compile the whole app monolithically and ship a single exe. You could have a number of components to it that you could actually swap out after deployment and then you'd get the new behavior. So you put a new assembly in there, you know, it starts using the new assembly. And people did some very cool things that way with extensibility and with letting things um, be replaced on the fly, even literally while the app was running. And those solved some really nice, important problems. But Mm. I think what happened was a bunch of people kind of got architecture astronauty about the whole thing. They, you know, never saw an indirection they didn't like and everything had a factory and then you have to have like factory <laughs> factories and, and yeah. you know, and, and you're like, wow, I just wanted to create, you know, this business object. And yeah. um, if we ever add a new kind of bank account into this banking system, we're going to have to change all this code anyway, right? Right. Um, so now I see some people who are swinging back from those interface factory creator patterns uh, to a, a little bit more rigid because flexibility is great, uh, but it also makes things complicated. Makes more complex, right? So, I mean, those are your choices. And in fact, that's usually the knock against C++ is that you have all this tremendous flexibility about by reference, by, by address, by value, by this, by that, and you have to explain what you want, and then you get exactly what you asked for in contrast. Whether it's good or not. Whether it's good or not. And in contrast to other languages that say, don't you worry your pretty little head about that. <laughs> You only get the right. one thing, it's going to be fine. And it's and life thing, and you're going to like it. Exactly. Yeah. Life is going to be awesome, trust me. Trust me, this is what you want. And, and you know, some of us are saying, I, no, it's not actually. I, I kind of wanted it a little different. And so you choose C++ when you're okay with the complexity because you want the flexibility. And similarly, you choose all that dynamic runtime composability when you're okay with the complexity because you want the flexibility. Hmm. But it's not always the only way to go, right? 
Well, and you'd also see why what you've just described perfectly explains why people tend towards C++ when performance is what matters. If I need to know that I'm going to go fast, I need to be responsible for everything. Yeah. So I have control over that. And when it isn't fast, it's my fault. Right, exactly. And and all that, you know, extra indirection and creating things that create things that give you back interfaces that you can query to get the real thing is mm-hmm. also, you know, sometimes some forget the performance. I want flexibility. And another person right. says, forget the flexibility, man. Uh this job needs to run in ten hours so that I know what to do in the morning when the stock market opens. Right. How about is forget there, the understandability? Yeah, maintainability. The, the readability. Yeah. <laughs> So there are yeah. certainly still apps out there that, you know, if they take twice as long to run, there's no point in running them. Right. And hmm. for those apps, every bit counts, and, and people are writing those apps in C++. But they're not writing them the way that you probably learn C++, where they have to worry about memory leaks themselves. or uh, They're using the standard library, which no one seems to be scared of anymore. Um, so they've got a collection of behaviors available to them, the same as a .NET developer has the base class libraries, and they're using uh, memory, not I don't want to say tricks, but um, paradigms and idioms like smart pointers so that they're not keeping track of, of memory leaks themselves. And they're mm-hmm. writing code that actually feels a lot like managed code, but it tends to be taking its performance hit at compile time, and therefore it's faster at runtime. Yeah, it's interesting to think that C has evolved and that even it's doing memory management now, just doing it differently than the way we do it in .NET. Right. I mean, absolutely. You know, I used to say many years ago when I taught C++ that um, people who advocate garbage collection believe that memory management is so important that it shouldn't be left up to the programmer. (laughs) Whereas people who advocate deleting everything you knew believe that memory management is so important that it shouldn't be left up to the compiler. Nice. Either way. <laughs> do you think uh, the do you think the focus in memory management has sort of eased off because we now have sixty four bit machines with unlim- virtually unlimited amounts of memory? It depends how long your app runs for. I mean, if you're writing um, a job that starts, runs for a while, and then stops, the memory leak doesn't get a chance to be bad. There's no point. Yeah. You know. Um, I, Somebody told me about meeting a guy at a conference who was writing a C++ app that when it runs successfully, the board on which it is running is blown up in the explosion of the missile it is guiding. Huh. Well, they don't worry so much about memory leak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, and debugging is a bitch. Oh, yeah, it really is. Um, <laughs> But if you're writing output, I'd like to see the test suite. Yeah, really. <laughs> when they say it blows up, they're not fooling around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, my code's blowing up here. <laughs> That's what I mean oh, by that you don't necessarily me. deploy it to a PC. But then imagine you're writing Outlook, right? <laughs> Outlook comes up in the morning when you turn your computer on. It's I'd like to blow up Outlook. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's strap that puppy to a missile. You know, if it if it leaks uh, one byte for every email you get, how long until your machine stops working? Yeah. You know? Um, and we all know stories of, you know, print servers that had to be turned off every two weeks and turned back on again for no apparent reason. And then it mm. comes comes down to it's leaking some very, you know, 100 bytes or something with every print job. And, and mm. back, if you only had 64K, you can calculate how long until there's not enough for the OS to work. And so, sure, you have a 64-bit machine, you you get a lot longer that you can leave the stupid leaky app running without without trouble. It just um, seems that once we move to 64-bit, that um, all sorts of manner of training and discussion and talking about garbage collection just sort of evaporated. That people put importance on things based on, this was important when I learned to program on the kind of machines we had when I first learned. Yeah. And, and they don't always notice that, hey, you know what? Uh, we don't have those machines anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, if you if you think you're going to be building business software in that environment for the rest of your life, you probably don't have to worry about it too much. But you know, it's a good thing to know, people. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot more going on in C++ 11 than you know new smart pointers. There's things we talked about readability. I think a couple of the features uh, really are 100% about readability, and that's Lambda and Auto. Okay. Um, so, you know what var is in C sharp? 
Yeah. That's what auto is in C++11. Nice. It's like it has a type. It is strongly typed, and I, and I commit, as always, to only putting things in it that are of the type. I just don't feel like, well... Defining it. Uh, pressing keys on the keyboard, you know? Yeah. Because the lazy. word type is so overloaded. Um, I'm not going to press any keys on the keyboard. And if you've ever, ever done um, an iteration loop, you've got some vector, and you're going to go from beginning to end of the vector, and you have to declare the iterator, and its type depends on what this is a vector of. So you have to say, I'm declaring a forward iterator into a vector of const ints or something. And you shouldn't have to do that. Well, you get it wrong and the compiler squawks at you because it knows yeah. what begin returns, right? And then it yells at you that you've done it wrong. And you right. always, you're just like always... four next, phasers on stun, Kirk out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I see this error message and I'm always like, if you're so smart, why don't you do it? <laughs> That's what yeah. auto says. Okay. Right. It says this iterator is of type, whatever the heck it is that begin returns. Congratulations, you, know? you got a for loop in C++. In C++. <laughs> exactly. Yay! So, and that's what I mean by it starting to read like other languages, right? Because then that just reads like a for each, right? Yeah. You don't have to know gory details like the type of the iterator. Um, the other thing lambdas, they are um, uh, like anonymous delegates or lambdas in any other language. Mm-hmm. You, you just mm-hmm. Where you would put the name of the function to call, you actually just put the code to execute. And right. some punctuation to say, hi, I'm a Lambda, blah, blah. And that does some very interesting things to your brain. <laughs> because the standard library, the, the STL as people like to call it, has a lot of functions in it. So instead of the language for, which is a, which is a keyword, there's a function for each in the standard library. And the last parameter to that is what to do for each whatever. And mm. if you have to put the name of a function in there and then go take your code that used to be in a for loop and put it in a function somewhere else and blah, blah, things get separated in time and space and you kind of right. lose mental images. Ah, screw it, I'll just use the language for loop. Right. When you can just leave the code in there as a lambda, everybody can read it, everybody can understand it. And the advantage of using the, the for from the standard library is that it's trivial to replace that with, say, a parallel for from the Parallel Patterns Library. And ah. now you're automatically multi-threading. Hmm, nice. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety-five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. So C++ OX is just made C++ into C Sharp now, right? Well, C++ 11, I have to call it by its due name. Ah, okay. Um, it's like getting used to calling the baby by the name you've given them when they're finally born instead of continuing to call them, you know, bump or squiggle or whatever. The baby. Uh, the baby. <laughs> yeah. So C++11 made a fairly small co- collection of changes to the language and another fairly small collection to the library that have the consequence that you can write C++ with the same kind of thought processes as C-sharp or VB.net or, hmm. for that matter, Java. So you sort of think the same ways and the right things happen. So there's a powerful library, but it's implemented with templates, which is very different and importantly different from the way that uh, managed languages typically implement generics. The generics are resolved at runtime and templates hmm. are resolved at compile time. So there's no runtime cost to a template approach. Interesting. And there is a runtime cost of figuring out what to use, figuring out if it meets the constraints, uh, potentially throwing some exceptions if it doesn't, and so on uh, in a managed world. Well, the, ma- the nature of managed world tends to be a lot of decision-making at runtime yes. and a lot less at compile time. That's correct. And so your app, by definition, will have to run slower, but it will have more runtime composability and extensibility right. it, because that's what it's designed for. So most of the time on most of our machines, we have power to spare. Mm -hmm. And we really don't care how fast the app runs within limits. Um, But we do want the ability to be able to put in an extension or 
handle a new file type or those kinds of things. That's great. Those make sense to write with that tool set. There's another set of apps that don't need to be extended at all. Their job is to, I don't know, interpret MRIs, and no one's going to suddenly ask them to start interpreting photographs of automobile crashes. Right. So what they need to do is is process those MRIs as fast as possible because you're trying to decide whether or not to give somebody surgery. Yeah, but it's still fast as possible. It doesn't matter whether it does that processing in one second or two seconds. No, but there are things going on today that, that take, you know, 20 hours, and if you could make them take 10 hours, you could change your business model. Sure. And and I have definitely run into businesses where one second is too long. If you've got to do however many thousand of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and as we get the ability to do more and more parallel processing uh, with multi-core machines, but also um, Herb Sutter and Daniel Moth had a pair of presentations at a, at a recent AMD conference where they were talking about harnessing GPU from inside C++ applications. Mm-hmm. Now you can get 100 times speed up for certain kinds of problems. Wow. So if I've got a password that takes 40 days to crack by brute force, I change my password every 30 days, my password's safe, right? But if you get 100 times speed up, it takes less than half a day to crack by brute force. Suddenly my password's not safe anymore. Yep, that's and true. And I'm not going to change my password twice a day. Now we need a different, entirely different strategy. Yes. So some really wonky things happen. <laughs> When you, when you really crank on. When you start, when you start getting that kind of computational power. You know, I've been wrestling with this. How are we going to solve massive parallelism development problems? And I keep thinking it's going to be a new language, but maybe it's going to be a really old language with some new tricks. Well, you know, there are some specific languages that are only for GPU programming. Mm -hmm. They are, there's quite a few of them and they're all described as C-like. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> In other words, they have curly braces and you can't r- you can't read them. They have curly <laughs> braces, they have semicolons, they have a arcane punctuation, then right. they're missing a bunch of things that C has and they have a bunch of extra bonus things that are unique to themselves. They're super hard to read. I mean, a, a room full of, of smart people who read C and C++ code all day going, "Whoa, wait, can you back up and show me that again?" Yeah. Um they're they're very very specialized to talking to a GPU in in a way that's close to its metal, which is, of course, why C was originally written, you know, mm. to write operating systems in. Right. Um, and C++ retains some of that heritage of being close to the metal. There's this, like, priesthood of people who write apps that can do that, and they probably won't change, but there's no way that ordinary developers are going to go there. Mm. And so, you know, this uh, C++ AMP accessorated accelerated massive parallelism, which was announced this summer, is a way of saying, what if you could just do it from C++? Right. And gain all of the advantages, the abstractions, the templates, even throwing exceptions, and still be able to leverage that. Ten times speed up is easy. hundred times speed up Hmm. is hard. Yeah. Hey, Kate, um, let me ask you a question here personally. What Can you describe, can you remember or recall the most powerful... C++ application you ever wrote and and by that I mean when it ran it ran on you know really powerful systems or parallel systems or in the CPU was spinning so fast that <laughs> you know that the smoke came out the back well, just like know, the the most powerful uh, yeah go ahead back in the day the most powerful equipment could probably now be outperformed by whatever's in your pocket yeah um, that's the problem. I mean, I remember writing um, stuff to do numerical calculations uh, with arbitrary length integers and having to drop into assembler, you know, for the absolute performance to make it to make it usable, to make it responsive. Yeah. And you know, that's just that's just crazy talk now because the machines are are a thousand times faster than they were, you know, ten years ago. And with the sorts of calculations that require more data, when you make them faster, all they do is put more data in them. So right. we've done financial stuff, stock market stuff, that goes from working with, you know, a thousand or ten thousand points to saying, oh good, now we can work with a hundred million points. Right. Still just as slow. Because that's their window, right? They in the case yeah. of the finance stuff, they have like while the markets are closed. And and they just they're going to process as much data as they can process in let's say five hours. Right. And if you make it a hundred times faster 
they're going to process 100 times as much data because they've got some decisions to make and they don't really need five minutes. They they want as much capability as possible behind those decisions. So what kind of hardware are those guys running on? <laughs> there, there are specialized compute clusters that actually oh. have entirely different CPUs than what we have. The CPUs that are in our laptops are very general. They're fine with jumping around and doing one thing one minute and another the next. And the uh, more specialized you get to something like a GPU, which has a very, very limited set of instructions it can perform, you get way better speed. So on your CPU, you have to have this giant cache because God only knows what you're going to ask for next. Um, On a a GPU or on these um, in-between chips, you can make some assumptions that people are going to kind of march through memory sequentially and you don't need such a big cache and that kind of thing. Mm. And so mm-hmm. they put their effort somewhere different. And, you know, isolating the developer from that, letting them write the same code to run on wildly different um, hardware and architecture, it's a challenge, that's for sure. Yeah, But there's sure no is. way that most developers are going to take that challenge on. Right? So if you work in a company that makes MRI machines, you can take that challenge on. But if you work in a company that sells insurance, it's not going to happen. Right. The general purpose language has to help you out. So we've already seen with parallelism, just regular CPU parallelism, tons of different ways to do it. There's the task parallel library for managed developers. And yeah. there's the, the parallel patterns library for native developers. And they have kind of the same capabilities. You know, put these decorations in here and away you go. Your old code now is going to sort of thread itself. Right, because there's a runtime that will say, "Ooh, looks like I'm running on four cores. Here we go, boys!" and deals out threats. Um, yep. That makes parallelism accessible to ordinary people. That's what you have to have. You but that expect- still depends on the developer deciding that this needs to be parallel. That this can be parallel. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that's really crucial. I mean, if you want to find the biggest number in a collection, right? Mm-hmm. You can't. Um, arbitrarily pick up any old algorithm for finding the maximum and run it in parallel because a lot of them depend on things happening in a certain order. Right. So you have to come up with a different way of tackling the problem that can be data parallel. I guess the question is, can we get to a, uh, a place where parallelism is assumed and, and serialism is declared? That would be interesting. That is and, interesting, Richard. You know, you have to teach people entirely differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think back to when you were first taught, let's say, how to sort something. And, right. and, and maybe you were taught like a bubble sort first. Yeah. Um, and then now here's a cleverer one. Here's quick sort. Here's heap sort. This is why this is better. And you start talking about order, um, you know, big O. All of that falls out if you're going to do it in parallel. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to come at it a whole different way. So you might say, well, I'll cut it in half and I'll sort the top half on one thread and the bottom half on another thread and then I'll interleave them. Well, what if it's not going to be two threads? What if it's going to be eight threads? What if you don't know until it's executing how many threads it's going to be? Now what are you going to do? It's kind of like trying to build a house during an earthquake. (laughs) That's That's still essentially applying serial thinking to parallel execution. You have to start thinking in a parallel way. You have Mm -hmm. to be taught data parallel algorithms. Um, Some of them are really obvious. Um, an analogy I recently read said, you know, if you've got a league of, of 64 teams and you want to find out which one is the best, you don't have team A play every other team while the other 63 sit idle and then have <laughs> team B play every other team. You split them up right. into pairs. They all play. Then the winners play each other and da-da-da. And that's, right. you know, that's parallel. When you've got those 32 first-round games going on, that's 32 basically threads, Right. Right evaluating the merits of each individual team. And again, if you get a, a construct in place that can evaluate the opportunities for parallel execution, that that as a programmer, I'm declaring the the execution of a game as a unique unit and that my platform can then recognize any of these games can be played in parallel. In parallel. I've identified this loop. And so I have a demo that I did at Tech Ed this summer uh, where we're flipping uh, an image, a JPEG, upside down. Mm-hmm. And the way mm-hmm. that it works is it takes one column of the JPEG and switches the top and the bottom pixels and then the second and the second from the bottom and then the third and the third from the bottom. It doesn't matter what order you do the columns in because there's no we're not flipping diagonally. Right. So that's a super easy loop to parallelize. You can just say, 
Uh, I don't care. Flip column one, followed by 72, followed by 109, whatever. Uh, they'll all end up flipped in the end. Well, you know, when Richard said this, um, you know, how a, a language that's parallel by default in serialism is declared. It reminded me of those days when, when I was just intrinsically experiencing asynchronicity and, you know, having the feeling like the ground was being pulled out from under you that I was taught this line of code finishes, this next line of code starts. Yeah. You know, and when you can't count on that, you begin to, you know, you begin to question, well, what, what am I looking at here? You know, so I always thought that it would be cool to have color coding for lines of code that are asynchronous, like just a different color. Just in because, the editor. Right in the editor, because, because this is what it's all about. Writing this stuff and understanding it is the biggest challenge. I don't think the challenge is that the hardware can't do it. Computers have always been able to, to parallelize. It's the brain has to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. We have to give the developers help. Right. So I think, I think I've always been, uh, an advocate of that, that if, if I could just have, you know, all my synchronous lines of code, one color, asynchronous lines of code, another color, then I can quickly look at it and tell, ah, this one's going off somewhere because it's red. So I can't right. count on that. That's yeah. right. Don't assume that when we come back here, that we will know this net, this value yet. Right. And maybe we're going to turn around and pass it to some other function, and the other function is okay with not knowing the value yet. Right. Some of the demos I saw with people playing around with these uh, task um, futures and waiting and so on, they say that, you know, they'll put in some, what we still call printf debugging, even if it doesn't involve it, where you touch the value of the variable so you can look at it in the debugger mm-hmm. and realize you're causing the thread to stop and wait. Right. Right, because it didn't have a value yet here, and now you want to look at the value, so now everyone's going to have to wait until it gets the value. Right, and you undermine the whole parallel thing. And this is where I think that humans, or at least we, aren't particularly good at this. If I jump back to the the team playoff thing, yeah, it's very easy for us to say that the game one and game two have to finish before they can the winners play each other and the losers play each other. Yeah. Where if you're properly parallel... The first two teams to win their games play each other of the 32 games that are going on. Mm. Right. I mean, in real life, we handle that by having sort of one day per round. Right. Um, but absolutely, if you were doing like a lightning chess eliminations or something and, and two random guys in the middle of the room both happen to finish their games, they should be able to step up and find a play table. Play off and play off and play yeah. off. And, and so that, you know, if we're completely asynchronous, we should be able to play all that off. And, and the point I'm wrestling with here is how much do we have to figure that out and how much can we let the platform figure that out? I think you definitely want to let the platform figure it out. And a lot of the, the runtimes, the concurrency runtimes, they have this idea of work stealing so that when a thread finishes <laughs> its job, it looks right. around and says, are there some other queued up tasks that are available that I can take now? Yeah. And so then that thread, you know, just runs off and picks something out of the, out of the queue. And and would have to know that it was available, that Team 52 and Team 37 were both available. Okay, cool, you guys can play each other, you know? Um, So you want to let a runtime handle that. And as Mm -hmm. a developer, you just want to fling all that work item or tasks or whatever the keyword is going to be in the language or library or framework that you adopt, fling all that stuff to do into a giant pile and step back and have like a, a giant weight at the bottom that says, when you guys have sorted it all out, tell me who the winner is or what the total of the values in the array are or what the biggest item in the collection is or whatever the issue. But that's still very declarative. That's still the developer saying, here is the the unique unit of work within this space. This is the collective space, and here's what the outcome should be. Go nuts. I don't think we have a way around that. Mm-hmm. Because only the developer knows whether... Well, for example, let's say we were talking about flipping a JPEG, but an actual photograph that I took of you know someone standing on the lawn. Mm-hmm. When, when you flip that, there's no interaction between the columns. But if I'm not flipping a JPEG, but I'm flipping an image with, with shadows and light and stuff, and the light's going to continue to come from above, but I'm flipping all the objects upside down, Ooh. right? Then it depends. You can't flip the columns independently, right? Because they they shadow each other. In right. So yeah. now I have to know as a developer, that's not parallelizable that way. 
Yeah, that's a different parallel problem. Right. The, the re-ray tracing can be done in parallel, but it's done after the flip. Right, so flip all the objects, then do the shadow work, exactly. Yeah. And so that kind of understanding of the domain, um, if I'm going to charge everybody their service charges for the month, is that completely independent and I can do it across the account space without concern? Maybe somebody's got something where their saving account and their checking account are connected, and if you have more than a dollar in service charges in one, the other one is free. Right. So uh, you know, based on a business rule, it's now parallelizable or not. Hmm. So Interesting. You know, I don't think we can trust the computer to do those parts yet. Yeah, in the end, domain experience still matters. Yeah, which is good, right? Because that way we're not just taking dictation. Yeah. We're getting paid to think, which is sort of what I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, to summarize, without all the tangents, which is the best part of the show, actually, I think, um, C++ 11, looking pretty good for, for C++ programmers, or maybe even for C-sharp programmers who want to get closer to the metal. You know, absolutely. Who want to build you, native apps, if you will. If you find yourself in October, and some people have speculated that you will find yourself in October, wanting to learn or relearn C++, you will be very grateful that you are going to learn or relearn C++ 11 and mm. not whatever you were taught in the 90s. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it's a much more pleasant experience for managed developers and for developers in general. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome, Kate. Hey, thanks for geeking out with us for, for an hour, and uh, sorry to take you away from your Coke IV. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have some coke to take in and some code to put out, so it's all going to be balanced. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a